Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the All Might Be Edified Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm extremely excited to be here with Admiral Rebecca Orr. Admiral Orr, and I'll call her Rebecca for this episode because she lets me. She assumed the duties as the Assistant Commandant for Intelligence in August of 2022. As Head of Intelligence Community Element and Service of Cryptologic Component Commander, she provides strategic leadership for Coast Guard Intelligence Program encompassing collection activities, analysis and production, information technology, and security functions for geospatial signals and human intelligence. In her previous assignment as the Commanding Officer of, and Captain of the Port at Coast Guard Sector Los Angeles, Long Beach, she facilitated regional partnerships and led a team of 550 active duty reserve and civilian personnel and a 1,200 member volunteer auxiliary workforce. Her team was responsible for safeguarding the maritime transportation system flowing through the vital ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. As a federal on-scene coordinator for the Pipeline 00547 response in October of 2021, she led a team of 800 personnel to mitigate oil affecting northern Mexico and the counties of Orange and San Diego in California. Rebecca holds a Bachelor of Science from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy and a Master's of Public Administration from Princeton University School of Public and International Affairs. She is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a National Security Affairs Fellow of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, and a German Marshall Fund Marshall Memorial Fellow. She is certified as a Type 1 Incident Commander in the National Incident Management System. Well, Rebecca, I'm so excited to talk to you on the podcast today and welcome. Thanks, Keith. I'm excited to join you on the podcast. And I failed to mention that you were also born in India and spent several years there and also lived in Iran for a little bit. That's so exciting and a, quite a different resume from most of our guests on the podcast. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's thanks to the unlikely pairing of my dad from West Virginia and my mom from Goa, India, uh, somehow meeting in a place called Ahmedabad. Yeah, that's so fascinating. You also, you taught me about a phrase called third culture. Third culture is when you grow up with a different culture than your parents. Is that correct? So third culture kids, I stumbled across this term actually on Facebook. So I spent, I went to middle school in India at the American Embassy School in New Delhi. And many years later, I think it was in my late 20s, I stumbled across this phrase, third culture kid, which is where you've sort of grown up in a place that's different from your parents' experience but with your parents' experience. So you're, you're in a different culture. And as I read the characteristics of these so-called third culture kids, I was like, that's who I am. That's so neat. And then you got to connect with something that resonated with you. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have that similar experience that are children of immigrants and grow up somewhere else and grow up in a different culture than their parents. And so that's fascinating that you can connect with other people like you and have experiences that can strengthen you and and grow closer to different people from different backgrounds? You know, it was pretty hard, actually. I So I had gone to first and second grade in Granby, Connecticut, and I came back to high school in Granby, Connecticut. And so there was a bunch of time in between there, third grade to eighth grade, where I was in India. And I remember all my friends, so American MC School, full of folks that are expats and diplomats, and, and we're, all the kids are in school together. And for those of us that came back to the U.S. for high school, Board back to our home countries. We actually had a pretty miserable high school experience because we didn't quite fit in. We had missed this formative time of these folks that had grown up all together in the same place with a shared experience. And so you felt a little bit like an outcast. So middle school was way better for me than high school, but, but that was the shared experience, right? And then enter third culture kid definition. And it's sort of like, okay, I have a belonging. I have something that defines me. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Just shows how important getting that sense of belonging is and figure out where you fit in in the world. Yeah, it's pretty neat. You know, and that 
German Marshall Fund Marshall Memorial Fellow Program. You've talked to me a lot about that because in the years that our careers have crossed paths and you know my love for international work and I just have always been fascinated with this opportunity you got to do an international fellow and talk to the listeners a little bit about how that shaped your perspectives on your career and your outlook on life. So that was just really a terrific program. Um, so the German Marshall Fund is a think tank in Washington, D.C. based think tank. And there's been a handful of COSIs that have been a part of this program over the year. You apply on, over the years, you apply on your own. At the time when I went, it was, so it is, the objective is to facilitate transatlantic relations between the Europe, Europe and the United States. Uh, and so at the time I went, which was I think 2011, you know, this was incredible. It was basically a 24-day cross-cultural exchange where my group of roughly 20 of us went to Europe for 24 days. We all started in Brussels. We got an EU-NATO overview. And then we split between a Northern European, Southern European, and Balkan country or Balkan state. So in smaller groups, we're all experiencing engagements. I went to Stockholm to Italy, to Rome, and then to Macedonia. So you really do get an immersion over this 24 days of different perspectives in Europe from a cultural, social, political, nonprofit, economic perspective, really eye-opening. And then we all got the whole group gets back together at the end in Berlin, Germany for a couple of days. And First of all, when you do a trip like that and you come back, you do definitely go through an existential crisis. You're like, what am I doing with my life? You know, I had this really broadening experience and I'm definitely, I think my favorite way to learn is through experiences. But it, it gives you a real appreciation of our nation and how people view the, the United States, um, the role that we play as public servants. I will say that I, every time I've been overseas, I've been really amazed. I feel like most folks abroad pay more attention to the United States than we pay to it ourselves. They seem to have a better understanding of our history and they're watching our politics and economics and just trends and way of life very closely. And you could really see that in Europe. The other big eye-opening moment that I had in the course of that trip was just Europe is old. And, you know, the countries of Europe are, are old. They've been around for a long, long time, um, as opposed to this country called the United States of America. And you can see these lessons of history that are deeply ingrained in the European population across the different countries and it, it's perspective. And so, yeah, I really like a, a great eye-opening experience for me. I think they've changed the program a little bit, but for folks that are interested, if you just look up the German Marshall Fund and their fellowship programs, this is a, a particularly awesome. Right on. And I'll make sure we find some links to that in the show notes for anybody who might be interested because it is a fascinating and amazing program. You know, I just love that perspective and we've had many chats about it. And, you know, I think that as I've talked to you over the years, I first met Admiral Orr when I was a junior officer. She was a lieutenant commander and we met at the training center in Yorktown and we were like my roommate, Doug Fallon. I'll give him a shout out on here. He was, <laughs> he was working for Rebecca's good friend. And so we went out to dinner. And ever since I met her, she's always been sharing her experiences and always mentoring. And I've always appreciated that about her. As we were talking about, and I learned very early on about this international fellow program, and we talked about international politics. And I remember she ended up getting stationed at New Orleans with me very soon after that. And so we 
she quickly took a tie to me and started mentoring me. And that's where our friendship started to grow. And she took on this, this leadership program soon after that, where she started teaching us and junior officers about how to become more well-rounded. And she started teaching us about how the budget worked in the whole United States. That was one of the things I remember about this training program. And I remember just realizing that I didn't understand all these things about it. And so as you talked about how in Europe, they took more care about how our politics work, how our budget works, and just our government. I think there's some application for that that we probably should pay more attention. And as we just celebrated the 4th of July, as we're recording this on July 5th, you know, one of the things that makes our government work is that we have to be informed citizens to participate in our government for it to really work to its full capacity and, and benefit. So there's some value in us being informed citizens. So that's a great point. And I think as you think about that, what have you done with that since you learned that fact as a citizen yourself? I think that there was probably some time, uh, you mentioned the federal budget and you you know, in sequencing. So I, I spent about five years working on budget formulation. It's actually something I love. People think I'm a nut, but it's really fun because I think it's the intersection of politics, policy, negotiation, advocacy for priorities. And so working on budget formulation really at three different levels. So internal to the Coast Guard, um, some time at the Office of Management and Budget, some time on the House Appropriations Committee, Subcommittee for Homeland Security. You really realize that where you sit in the federal enterprise, and this goes for any enterprise, and when you understand where you sit in an enterprise, you know how to navigate that enterprise for effect or outcome. But if you take the worldview that you are the center of the universe, you'll be the center of your own universe, but you're going to be much, much less effective in terms of your ability to, to sort of navigate and, and drive to outcome. And so that was one big aha moment. And um, I'll give a shout out to now recently retired Captain Mike Sinclair, because he was the first one that showed me this amazing chart that's on the internet that has every agency represented. It's a tiny little orb. Uh, and so when you look at that thing, you see half of it is COD and half of it is kind of the rest of the federal enterprise. Whenever somebody comes to me and, and they're like telling me the Coast Guard is the center of the universe, I ask them to go find us on the chart. And then it's like, okay, now understand where all the levers are of government, right? So Mike was the guy who introduced me to that chart. But fast forward, you know, I get, get to New Orleans. I had also worked on the creation of what was at the time the Coast Guard's mid-grade officer career transition course. And that was really designed to, to broaden the perspective of some of our mid-grade officers um, who had the opportunity to go through the training so that they uh, would be more effective organizational leaders. And, and that is a transition, right? Leading self to leading others. And so New Orleans was great because we created this two-week leadership development program. And I know it was a commitment for, for the people that went through it, but that was the goal was, right? It's not just, you know, you said informed citizens. So informed citizens and effective public servants. Two objectives of mine that I think we, as we move along in our organizations, have an obligation to create those broadening moments and those broadening moments in a way that they're like, aha, at some point, maybe they stick and they make you a more effective, in our case, public servant. Oh, I just love that. And it worked. I felt that. And I was more, <laughs> I, I was a more effective public servant, I think, after that. And, and I did realize just that fact that I didn't see the Coast Guard as the center of the universe anymore. And I had to think more objectively about where we fit in the, the bigger sphere of a whole government and that just budgetarily. And I think I remember 
that the whole Coast Guard budget was the size of like the Air Force Officer Corps or something like that. It was it was very eye-opening for me to realize just where we fit in the grand scheme of things and to realize what we were working with and have those conversations and to really realize where all the different money came from. And as you start to think about those budget discussions in Congress and to realize, okay, what does this mean? What does this really look like? And to realize that these discussions aren't just focus solely on you and to be myopic about them, but to have a wider vision. And that was really helpful for me at a very young age in my Coast Guard career. And so I, I liked it a lot. I appreciate the feedback because I know there were a lot of people at the time that said, hey, I've got to get my quals. I've got, you know, this is taking away from collateral duties and, and folks were frustrated. And but there was some benefit. I've seen the model work time and time again after that with with some tweaks over the years. So I'm glad it worked. It's important. No, I agree. And I think there's some value in things like that, right? I think when we look at an organization holistically, when we think about, you know, we bring people into an organization and there's a certain training benchmark, right, that they have to meet to do their job. But then they also need to understand how an organization functions. How did you, as someone building a curriculum for that or building a design, how did you approach that? What was some of the thoughts that went into that to formulate a design to create, you know, you said informed citizens and effective public servants. So kind of walk the listeners through what your thoughts were to build that, build that into action. You know, how do you build leaders like that? These are, you know, you're trying to take these junior officers and prepare them at an early stage to then become, you know, hopefully effective leaders down the way that are going to be effective public servants. And for the point of this discussion, servant leaders, you know, is what we're looking for in the Coast Guard. So it's very applicable, I think. So kind of walk us through what your thoughts were as you were designing that. Sure. So first of all, credit goes to the Coast Guard Leadership Development Center. If you haven't had a chance to take a a class with Charlie Coiro, he's awesome. And so when we were building the mid-grade officer transition course, there was sort of a framework there that I just could plug into as a member of the design team and explore. And in an unconstrained thinking environment, which I, I think is is key to development of these types of leadership programs, and really different than perhaps how you know a military organization approaches a training, a tr- your typical training module. So um, having that unconstrained environment to build a course from the ground up, and and the piece that I was bringing to the table was really external interagency leading organizational leadership. And it did really start from this thought of how are you effective uh, in the interagency environment? And I can only say that I just, I think I personally enjoy interagency environment, whether it's crisis leadership, right? I, crisis leadership, um, the, the sort of the navigating the policy sphere, the national policy sphere, but just realizing that your ability to navigate in complex stakeholder relationships requires it requires some skill. It requires leadership. It requires ownership. We talked earlier um, about facilitation skills, bringing all those things together uh, so so that folks are equipped. They at least have kind of a framework in their minds. And I think they kind of thinking through the roots of this, I remember as a, as a junior officer in the Coast Guard thinking, gosh, we talk about leadership all the time. We talk about it, right? And usually that conversation started like, wow, I, that was kind of a lousy example of leadership. And we'd all be talking about what we wish leadership would look like. Um, and then realizing that, hey, where do we actually teach 
leadership. And then having various experiences, interagency crisis, and realizing, gosh, these are some of the core components of what leadership looks like in these complex um, policy and operating environments. Um, fast forward, you get that all into the Leadership Development Center, the opportunity to build a course uh, to have some unconstrained thinking. And now we're saying, okay, hey, let's let's try this material out. Let's see if it sticks. And then refining that over over many years. That's great. I love the Leadership Development Center. And I think you know, hearing in that framework, it's nice because it didn't feel like a military course. It felt a lot different. So, you know, that that's some interesting thought. And, you know, I think about, you know, you sent me your guiding principles from LA Long Beach. And I think about that thought. And I, you know, you've talked to me a little bit about how those were designed. And I think that that word unconstrained, you know, that, that resonates with me in how you're describing that course. But I think that's what you usually, when I talk with you, you look for that. It, it, you're looking forward to create that environment in yourself. You look to inspire people with that. And, and whether you mean to or not, that's just my impression of you is you're looking for that because I think you see value in that unrestrained, unconstrained you know, element to allow people to flourish. And so we're not going to go through all your guiding principles, but I think you know a, a set of guiding principles, first of all, Tell the listeners what that might be and then how you came to yours. So I had a, it was sort of a leadership aha moment. I had the great benefit of doing senior service school, attending senior service school at the Hoover Institution. It sits on the Stanford campus. And at the time, the program was uh, hitting its 50th anniversary, the National Security Affairs Fellowship. And so I was able to audit a lot of amazing courses. uh, And I took one called Leading Through Culture. And Breyer, recently retired, very successful CEO, was our guest. And he had just retired and he said, one of the most powerful moments that I've experienced is the day of my retirement, one of my employees walked up to me and they said, hey, even if you weren't there, we knew exactly how you would approach a difficult decision or a leadership decision because your leadership principles were so clear. And I thought to myself, that's a whole different level of leadership. How effective is your leadership approach in your own absence? And so I was able to spend a lot of time sort of focusing on my own values. And um, I think a lot of times in the Coast Guard, when people are asked, what are your values? They say they're the Coast Guard values. But really taking that, those are our organization values, but what are your values, right? What are Keith Pankow's values? What are Rebecca Forrest's values? So I took this idea of the guiding principles sort of standing alone in my absence. But what do those really say about how I lead? And so, you know, guiding principle number one, people first is mission success. That is something that has been near and dear to my heart since I was a cadet on a 378 on on a summer cruise, right? It goes way back because our mission is really well defined. People know what our missions are in the Coast Guard. I think less clear on how we take care of people to best perform those missions. And my belief is if we take the best care of our folks, we create the best environment, we will have mission success. So a lot of reflection went into those, you know, leadership at every level, be the leader you want to see, gets back to my comment about being a young junior officer and having a lot of conversations about what we think leadership should look like. And then sort of realizing at some point, you've just got to go out there and be be the leader you want to see. At the same time, be open enough to the feedback environment so that you can self-correct. 
but it also means something else. Leadership at every level and being the leader you want to see is really empowering people at the level they're at to hit their maximum potential. I do think there can be a tendency in hierarchical organizations to sort of pull up decision making. But when we pull up decision making, we undermine the folks that we have hired and trained to be in exactly the position that that to do the job that we've asked them to do, right? So that is leadership at every level, is being the leader you want to see and empowering leadership at every level of the organization that you're in. And I could walk through all of them, but those are just, I think, just a couple examples. Yeah, I love that. And I love that thought about when you pull up decision-making, you undermine people. And, you know, I think one of the things that we talk about a lot too, and it's in your, your leadership thoughts is about, you know, commitment to constant learning. And you say in your principles, be curious, stay hungry, try, fail, learn, get up, thrive, teach, repeat. Now, I know you pretty well. That is like your mantra. Like I, I can <laughs> visualize you in all of those words. Like that, that is Rebecca Orr in a mantra. Now, and I would feel comfortable with you as my leader doing those things, but not all the time in the Coast Guard and in many organizations would I feel comfortable with those, those things. And especially a lot of times, you know, we, we can be afraid to fail. And I think there's, you know, there's a parallel when we're afraid to fail, our curiosity wanes and our hunger wanes. And so there's a growing conversation, I believe, about the importance of learning from failure and, and the importance of curiosity. But I don't know that there's the same growing action of those topics with the conversation. So how do you turn those words into action? I think it's easier than we think. And there's a word that's missing from my guiding principles that really needs to be baked in because it's very important to me, which is feedback. And the other side of feedback is accountability. There is a book that I love called Radical Candor by Kim Scott. I talk about her book all the time. Uh, and it, when I read her book and I had the opportunity to meet her when I was at the Hoover Institution auditing a Stanford class, you know, I really realized that in hierarchical strong culture organization, the ability to give feedback and normalize feedback can make a tremendous difference. But what, what I tend to see in a lot of organizations is people don't like to give feedback. They save up feedback, then they feel bad giving feedback, so they never really give it, and they sort of they sort of dumb it down or they soften it. And people don't get the information that they need to grow. And so, you know, the, this idea of being curious, staying curious, learning, failing, a lot of it is about also having a culture of, of feedback. And uh, there's a bunch of research that shows that where you have high levels of peer accountability and peer feedback, organizations perform better. And so how, how do you normalize that? It's like me saying, it's like you saying to me, hey, Rebecca, well, let me give you a different example. My mom is trying to help me fix one of my bad habits, which is saying the word like a lot. I am not proud of this, but I'm just going to admit it. It's something that um, I've done for a long time. And, you know, just being willing to say, hey, you said like again. Uh, and what I told her is I said, if I say like, you say like, and she says, okay, as opposed to you know, you and me coming off the podcast and you saying, gosh, I just did this interview with Rebecca and she said like 50 times. And it's really, you know, if she could knock this out of her vocabulary, she'd be a much more effective communicator. But you never tell me. Yeah. And then if you were my boss, you fast forward to maybe writing my OER and your communication skill 
communications um, and speaking and listening category and you say, well, you know, she's pretty good. Her thoughts are great, but she really needs to fine tune her, her messaging and drop some of these uh, terms that she uses that kind of decrease her effectiveness. So I'm going to mark her down a little bit on evaluation, but I forget to actually give her that feedback as opposed to the very first time saying, hey, Rebecca, I just did this podcast with you. And I just want to give you a little bit of feedback. And then I can take that and say, wow, thank you so much for letting me know. And I'm going to work on correcting it. But you see this sort of, and this is culture, right? Behaviors that we do on autopilot. You see us as human beings, I think, being really uncomfortable giving that everyday feedback. But when you hit the stride of that everyday feedback, good, bad, ugly, you start to create better behaviors. And, And I'll give you, we talked about learning organizations earlier. You know, so how do you actually get to this? How do you get to a place where you can really commit to constant learning and thrive and fail and get up and repeat the whole cycle? Uh, I think you have to take the time to reflect on being a learning organization. So I'll give you an example. We had a, when I was back in Los Angeles, I mean, that place was crazy. We had all kinds of different operational activities that were just off the charts and, and nuts. But uh, we had one search and rescue case that went really, really well. And I was talking to our parent office and I said, hey, yeah, we're going to do a, a lessons learned hot wash on this tomorrow. And they said, well, what went wrong? Why are you doing lessons wrong? Lessons learned. And I said, nothing went wrong. I said, we're having a lessons learned because we want to really understand what went right so that we can repeat it. And so this idea that lessons learned is something negative, I think that also has to be challenged. And that gets back to feedback as well. Yeah, and that's great. And that goes back to with a principal in a learning organization that your strengths can become your greatest weaknesses if you don't challenge you know, even your strengths in a learning organization as well to see, okay, what we're doing well, are we still doing, can we grow there as well? So that's a wonderful thought as well. You know, lessons learned. And if you're not challenging that, Keith, I would argue that you're settling, right? You're settling for less than what you can be. And so I think it's an organizational challenge and it needs to be an organizational imperative wherever you're at. But this idea of challenging and committing to constant learning and assessing and, you know, moving on. And then for larger organizations, how do you institute that in a way that's repeatable? And certainly, you know, we're in the Coast Guard in the, in the United States military. Compliance is an important factor, right? But at some point, you really got to evaluate uh, and say, okay, we know we've got a very compliant culture. We've got to change whatever that baseline is so that we can evolve and be better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, what you're talking about, you know, this practice of talking about things allows people to let their guard down more so they're not as defensive when that feedback loop starts to happen more often. And that's important because, you know, people have to also become prepared to receive feedback as well, not just give it. I think that's what we're not comfortable giving it and we're not comfortable receiving it a lot of times. No, and when you talk about actioning, guiding principles, you really have to model whatever your leadership philosophy is. And you've got to create an environment where your team can model it and be acknowledged for their modeling, right? So essentially, you know, you're, you're hiring and firing by, by guiding principles. You know, are folks in line with whatever those are uh, and, and you know, definitely rewarding it. I think this is also about 
culture, when you talked about letting your guard down, one of the sort of most shocking pieces of feedback I ever realized, um, I started doing these things called culture workshops, which is a whole, a whole different conversation, but I'm happy to talk about, but it really is about it, diagnosing the culture where you're at, owning the good, the bad, and the ugly of it, identifying those things specifically, and then putting all of your heads together and saying, what is the culture that we want to create, that we want to live and thrive in every single day to reach maximum potential? And in the course, I've done five or six of these now over the past few years. And in the course of doing these culture workshops, on a few occasions, I've received feedback that that people are so caught off guard by the amount of sharing that they really have to let their own guard down to be vulnerable to share. And that was really shocking to me. Uh, and so I, what I realized, it's shocking to me because it's a thing that people have to be willing to be vulnerable, but they have to be in an environment where they can be vulnerable and that's a safe space. Yeah, that's true. And I think that psychological safety is so yes. valuable for an environment. And I think in a lot of leadership training, I don't know that we talk about how to create that. We talk about really good components about how to talk to people, how to meet people where they're at, how to do all these different things, but we don't ever really talk about how to create psychological safety in an environment. And I know even when we talk about creating good mental health practices, and even today on our operations brief, um, Admiral Barada was talking about self-care and really good things, but really good conversations. But very rarely do we talk about what good psychological safety looks like in an environment and leadership discussions. And I think as the growing conversation, it continues about why that's so important. I think it might be helpful to, to talk about how that looks like in bridging that. And I think, you know, I've always felt comfortable coming to you. I know that other people felt feel the same way. Marcus Boyd, who was a, a prior guest on this podcast, who you recommended to me, spoke highly of you and you recommended, and he was a great guest on the podcast. If you haven't listened, go back and listen to Marcus's episode. He also recommended Radical Candor as well. What do you think about psychological safety and how we can actually learn more about it, think about it, and create that environment better in organizations. It is so important. And when you are in a place where you have that psychological safety, you will flourish because you're comfortable and you can be your own best self. As you were formulating that question, I was thinking how many times people have asked me for training and conflict management, not training in better communications, not training in giving feedback, not training in better facilitation training and conflict management. And it's happened so many times that's really struck me. And what I've realized is, you know, what, what are all the things that happen to the left of conflict management? What are all those effective communication tools that we can use in an organization? It's where we very rarely, if ever, will get to conflict management. And the fact that folks are telling me that they're looking for conflict management training tells me that's sort of the starting point for difficult conversations. But there is a whole spectrum of communication skills that we can put in play before we ever get to conflict management that will enable successful communications. And so what does that look like? So getting back to everyday feedback, right? Everyday feedback. And when it's really important when that feedback goes up an organizational chain, that feedback is met with a thank you. It's not met with a challenge because that is the quickest way to shut somebody down, right? And I'm sure you've seen it. We've all seen it, right? Or somebody has a good idea, or they're afraid, they're definitely afraid to say something, but they do. And then maybe somebody that's more, more senior to them or is in a sort of a, a higher position or higher rank or sort of perceived more powerful position 
just challenges them. And you never hear from that person again, right? And so how do you do that? And I would say for, for those of us that are team leaders, it's saying, thank you for your feedback. Full stop, period, the end. And then you just listen, right? Creating that environment for listening. And what I have seen is I've seen sort of communication environment tipping point. When you have enough folks that have feel that they can have these, you know, these respectful and candid communications, and that is recognized more and more people start to practice these respected and candid conversations. And that gets rewarded as good behavior because you start to have positive outcomes from it. And then it's sort of, it becomes more just sort of this like wildfire. And then what people start to do is they start to self-correct because they're seeing these communication practices really work. And then what happens is people become much more willing and much more vulnerable to throw down creative ideas, to challenge people where they're at and challenging ideas. So now we're just focused on one idea. We're focused on many ideas and an innovative spirit starts to unleash as well, all because we've created this, this communications environment that's vulnerable, open, respectful challenge, candid feedback. Yeah. And, and we've increased the trust on the team as well. hundred percent. And people want to be there, I think, a lot more. Yes. That's a powerful environment shift that I think we can learn a lot from. And I want to stop there for a moment and issue the challenge. So think about how you accept feedback. And the next time you get some feedback, pause and listen to that feedback and think about how you want to respond. Do you want to give judgment? Do you want to give defense? Do you want to rebuttal? Or can you just stop with a period? Is that natural for you? And practice that. Can you live in that feedback? Can you just sit and listen for a while? And if you can't practice that for a while with your teammates, with your family, with your friends, practice receiving feedback because the more that you can receive feedback, the more that you can actually listen with open ears and open heart to the people around you and hear what they're trying to tell you. If you can't listen to the feedback around you, like that, with a period full stop, like Rebecca said, you're not actually hearing what's being communicated to you. You're listening to respond. So that's the challenge this week. Just think about how you listen to feedback and what your actions are and how you can sit in that feedback. I love that challenge. And thank you for issuing it for all of us. And it's a constant reminder. And I would just say, get uncomfortable to get comfortable. I think everybody's heard the phrase feedback is a gift, but it truly is. And just let it sit with you. Give it its space. Oh, I love that. I, you know, I have this idea ruminating for a book in my mind. Um, I don't know if it'll ever, if I'll ever write it, but I think about it often to motivate myself. And it, the title that I have is the the gifts we leave unopened. One of them, feedback. You know, I, th- I think often about diversity. These ideas of like the, the gifts we just refuse to open for ourselves and leave ourselves stagnant. And I think about these thoughts a lot because. There's these things in our lives that would just propel us to greater heights and degrees if we would just take the time to open them and sit in them more. And I love the way you phrase that, get uncomfortable to be comfortable because the comfort zone is not where we grow, right? It's mm-hmm. We have to leave the comfort zone to get to the growth zone. Now, the panic zone is real. I recognize the panic zone is a real zone and there's just as little growth in the panic zone as there is in the comfort zone. But that sweet spot in between is the growth zone. So you have to find it. So what advice do you have for people about finding that sweet spot of the growth zone? If you're comfortable, you're probably not growing. You might be learning, 
when I look back at my growth moments have been, they have been uncomfortable, if not downright ugly. But I also believe at the same time that if you're not learning, you're not growing and it's time to move on to challenge yourself. So I I don't know if I have great advice. I just know that it's hard and it's uncomfortable, but recognize when you're stagnant and you're not growing, because that's probably an indicator that you need to sort of look for your next and find your next growth opportunity. I think that's good advice. The Coast Guard admittedly is in a staffing challenge. So we're in a staffing challenge. Now we both love the Coast Guard. I, you know, I retire, but it doesn't change the feelings I have about the Coast Guard. This is just what was best for my next phase in life. And I worked for the Coast Guard as a civilian, so obviously I didn't go too far at this moment. But, you know, we talk a lot about how do we get the right people, keep the right people and train. You know, there's a sweet spot in an organization where you, you can hire the right fit and then keep the right fit. You know, every organization tries to find their human resources to find the best fit. It requires the least amount of training or, you know, whatnot. And there's this, all these formulas with hiring practices. But, you know, I would argue that finding the right person is always better than finding the right skills because you can always train for certain skills. As we look at the Coast Guard or other organizations, what would you say about, you know, you focus a lot on people first as mission success. How do we get our organizations to build a people-first focus that keeps the right people wanting to be part of our organizations and committed to our organizations? So first, I think the Coast Guard does a really nice job of bringing in fantastic talent and what I would sort of call raw material, because when you come in, you're, you're new to the organization, you've been drawn to it for some reason. And that after that point is the organization's responsibility to help you have a journey where you are growing, learning, thriving, feeling intrinsic motivation because of the sense of mission that you're carrying out every single day. And so how do we do that? I think that one thing I know for sure is that when often when folks choose to, to leave the service, first of all, it's not if, it's when. And so there, there's a whole bunch of reasons that people choose to leave, but especially for folks that are sort of earlier in their Coast Guard journey, you got to ask, you know, they've got the Coast Guard as an option and they've got plenty of other options. Why did they choose the other option? And really understanding that, realizing that there's, especially in the post-COVID environment where we have this really interesting workforce shift and workforce preferences that I think we're all wrestling with, um, certainly all the services are with recruiting and retention today. So there, there's this pretty fantastic effort underway in the Coast Guard called the Talent, talent Management Transformation Effort, talent, talent Management Task Force, and, and we're looking at all of these issues. But what I'm going to offer, Keith, is that it's hard and it takes a wholesale look at an organization um, and it requires a range of options on how do we keep the right people. But I think at the heart of that, for most people, if they are enjoying what they're doing, if they're in an environment where they feel respected and heard, and they feel like they're contributing and their basic needs are met, they're probably going to be really satisfied where they're at. So, so there's a book I read a long time ago. I was taking night school class as lieutenant in New York, starting my MPA, and it's called Exit, Vote, Voice, and Loyalty. And it's written by, it's Albert Hirschman, Albert O. Hirschman. And um, so Exit Voice and Loyalty. And it really talks about the firm and people in the firm where people feel, and I am way paraphrasing this, so please feel free to go look up the book. I haven't read it in 10 years. But where people feel like their voice can be heard, 
that's one option that people will say with a firm. Where people feel that some sense of their loyalty to the organization has been met for whatever reason, whether it's based on mission, whether it's based on having basic needs met, they're probably going to stick with an organization. Where people feel like they don't have voice and they don't have loyalty, they're probably going to choose to exit. And I think that's just a really simple formula with for what is many, many, many pieces that go into why somebody stays in an organization. I will just say that it is really an interesting time to be in the United States Coast Guard. We truly are a global Coast Guard. And we were just talking about some of the international footprint of the Coast Guard uh, before we got started here. But it is really fascinating given that just the amazing suite of authorities that the service has and the reach that we have in, in the world that we're operating in today. And so we know we've got the mission attractiveness, right? But how do we get all the other things right? And we're working on that. Yeah. There was a thought that Adam Gearlock said on his podcast that I think resonated with me and what I felt I was missing in my Coast Guard experience that I, I just love so many things about my Coast Guard experience, but I felt like this was the one thing that I always felt I finally had a, an aha moment. And he said, and I don't think this is true just for the Coast Guard. I think this is just overarching true that many organizations can benefit from resharing this thought. And he said something to the effect of that too often we we share a leadership program that's actually a career management program disguised as a leadership program. And so, mm-hmm. and I think that's what, when I think about my experiences with our OPM, our, our officer program management office, or even e- EPM where our enlisted and our officers go for career guidance and assignment guidance and stuff like that. I always felt like it wasn't about me growing as a leader or what my needs were. It was more about them trying to manage my career and not with my input necessarily. And, and that's just my experience, not in my thoughts, not that that's what they're trying to do. Just that's what I always felt. And I think that's what a lot of people in a lot of organizations feel is they feel like they're being kind of managed right in their mm-hmm. career. And I think too often that's where we fail in leadership programs is that we try to manage people's career and try and we could probably be benefited by disconnecting leadership from career management and just focusing on leadership growth and guidance and separating those from career guidance because they're two separate things completely and leadership isn't solely connected with career and I think when we do that, we can almost set the tone that your growth in your career is solely connected to your growth as a leader. What are your thoughts on that? On separating the two, career from leadership. So yeah, I've yeah. never, never thought about that. And I, I really like approach, the idea that you're suggesting sort of approaching these as complementary, but parallel um, lines of effort. I think it's interesting as you're talking, I you know, it depends, you know, what is our definition of leadership? One of the things that's always frustrated me, this goes back to my, my very early Coast Guard experiences, is I really observed a lot of more junior folks in the Coast Guard sort of having this definition of leadership is telling people what to do. You know, you get out there, I went on my first cutter, you have this baked in division, you're the division officer, and well, that is not what leadership is, right? That's the furthest, that's the furthest thing from what leadership is, right? And and, uh, you know, you enter into the sector world that we've both been at. And, you know, oftentimes you show up as junior officer and you've got nobody working for you, right? But you've got this entire interagency environment that you have to create a coalition of the willing to arrive at some sort of outcome for the greater good, the common good, the national good, right? That's more what leadership looks like. So 
career guidance, leadership management. I would just say, first of all, in career guidance, I, I think folks need to realize that they can actually participate in their career management, that it's okay to have discussions that say, hey, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I want. This is what I think I need. Here are some limitations and constraints that might exist in my personal situation. Thank you very much for offering me that opportunity. I don't want that right now. Yeah, I've actually turned down a number of things over the years, probably, I mean, like seven or eight, whether it was, um, uh, you know, I realized competing for certain command opportunities weren't at the right time for me. Um, I realized that the senior service school that I thought I wanted wasn't a good fit. And I saw another professional opportunity. I realized that I was the wrong fit for a couple of fellowships based on the interview process. But I've shared that with a lot of folks and they say, well, you're not allowed to say no. And you look, this is about using your voice, right? We just talked about exit voice and loyalty. You've got to use your voice to participate in your own career management process, because it's not like we're just blindly following a, a career guide here. Um, so the more you participate in that process in a way that you can articulate why the, the opportunity that you're seeking is a benefit to the service and why you have the skills to uniquely contribute to that. If you can communicate and your career management process in that way, I think you will have better outcomes. But I just really like this idea and I would love to lean into it more of, of career guidance and leadership management. And I wanna share one question that I ask. So I have started using about five years ago what I call standard check-in, check-out and career guidance questions. These questions are I use for everybody. I use them for mid-period counseling. And what I find in the course of having these questions is one, everybody prepares. And, and so that creates self-reflection. Everybody self-identifies their strengths, their weaknesses, their dreams, and their challenges. And one of the questions I ask is, what is your great life dream? You know, what are you driving towards? A lot of times for our more junior folks, it, you get a very sort of a tactical, you know, my journey in the Coast Guard. Usually through the course of the conversation, it's like, hey, what really lights your fire? Um, and you find out what people are really, really excited about. And I'm convinced that the more we understand about what excites an individual and how we can align that excitement to their journey in the Coast Guard, that we will better retain those folks. Yeah, I agree with that so much. And I love the fact that, you know, we have this senior Coast Guard officer, and I think we need more of this in all of our organizations, senior people talking about using your voice to be participatory in that career management because I'd heard those things in my Coast Guard career. You can't say no to these opportunities or you'll reflect this message that you don't really want to be here. And and I I didn't listen to those voices because I had mentors like Rebecca that told me those things weren't true, that you had to you had to shape your own career for what you could live with and wanted to be part of. And so I did participate more in my career with my voice. But I know that those narratives exist and they exist in many of our organizations that you need to do whatever the quote unquote career guidance is for whatever your supposed vocation is. And that's not always true. You need to sit down and reflect upon whatever your path is for you individually and your vocation. And I think that's powerful to hear, you know, Admiral Orr tell us that she did the same things and she made it to Admiral that we can be successful and take our own journey. And so I really appreciate that. And we may have Admiral Orr on again because it's just been amazing and we've gone for quite a while. So I'll just wrap it up by any final words of wisdom to give the listeners with today as we close up this episode. I have a lot of words of, well, I don't know if they're words of wisdom, but a lot of thoughts. I think just a couple, just wrapping up the last thought um, on leadership and seeking opportunities. 
it is really important to be excellent where you're at. It is great to be looking towards the next thing and that is fine, but don't forget to just be excellent where you're at. And then we didn't talk about it. Maybe we can talk about this another time, Keith, but just really the idea of service reputation. It's how you show up every day and in the place, right? How you, in the place that you're at, how you show up, you know, in this case for the United States Coast Guard, but how you show up for everything in your life that really matters. And people tell me, well, I don't know what that means. And I'm like, it is the face that you show to the world every day. How are you going to show up? How are you going to be that leader that you want to see? That is really important. And if you haven't thought about your service reputation and how you show up to the world every day, do it in a way that is authentically yourself. Be yourself. Because when you try to be somebody that you aren't, you're probably going to come across as somebody that you aren't. So be authentically yourself, but be aware enough of the environment you're in to take that feedback so that that you can grow as a person and as a leader. So thanks, Keith. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. This has been really fun. Yeah, I really love those final words and just the combination of those two. Just be excellent where you're at and be your authentic self. And as a servant leader, that's the whole goal is to help other people be the most excellent version of their authentic self. That's what we're trying to do. And I just love all these comments and thanks so much for being a part of my journey, Admiral And thanks all of you for listening on this episode of the All Might Be Edified discussions on servant leadership and have a wonderful day. 